This evening's talk <coughs> is about equanimity. In Taos, we have <coughs> what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. And this sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. <clears throat> this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people, and it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out on it and take it in in every season, any time of the day or any time of the night, any day of the year, as it's quite clearly visible from where I live. <clears throat> this mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it. Rain and hail fall on it. Snow covers it. Lightning strikes it. Fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. <clears throat> the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance. The mountain of mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. <clears throat> the mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy. But it only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. <clears throat> The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. <clears throat> and so begins our exploration of equanimity, or <clears throat> upekka in Pali. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice a powerful force in the whole of our life. <clears throat> in the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, <clears throat> the ten perfections. And it's one of the four divine abidings, one of the four brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, compassion, and uh, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and equanimity. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. 
And those are mindfulness, investigation of states, effort energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. And those two factors being ikagata, one-pointedness, and equanimity, upekka. <coughs> upekka was the final factor to come into maturity before Siddhartha Gotama attained full awakening, full enlightenment. As the about-to-be Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree on that now very famous night with an evenness and a a balance in his relaxed and powerful presence as he, though he were an immovable mountain, as he sat there with his amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every every attachment to all the formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Upeka, in its maturity, is the factor or the quality of mind and heart that manifests before anyone comes to the realization of the of the dhamma before anyone comes to the first path before anyone enters the stream The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana, or destroyed completely, destroyed finally, as occurs with the final completion of vipassana practice. And one who abides in the natural state of purity in in relationship to desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here, a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the 
fearlessness, the great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of the Pali word upekka is on looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, we could say. Watching things as they arise and as they change and as they pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, meaning without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling and as it's described in the realm of Vedana, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Neutral feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or what we called the teeter-totter with another child. Both of us suspended, perfectly suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in midair. And there was always a, a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in the moments when this would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the still point. The still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, 
strength of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting uh, a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the very small container, the water will of course be very salty, quite harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water, the size of the river across the road here, or the size of the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness, or more accurately, the great wateriness that the salt is put into. Life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind, the spaciousness of heart with which we can meet and look on at life's everyday experiences as well as all the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's often called the heart of greatness. And with what in the suttas, in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, enlightenment, is to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other three immeasurables, the divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, including the various wholesome and beautiful states that are uh, developed and arise with concentration practice, mindfulness practice, and metta practice, including the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, that they are all met, all experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so, as I've already mentioned, upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings uh, that comes from uh, Zen Master Dogen with the commentary by Uchiyama Roshi and it's called How to Cook Your Life where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook the Tenzo and, in, in, and our relationship to food to teach us in this case about equanimity and, and we of course can Uh, bring this teaching immediately close. We can bring it right here and now in relationship to our cook and the food here in retreat. Our amazing Amy Tenzo. 
and also bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung. Now, of course, in Dogen's time, there was no natural gas and no propane or electricity available for cooking. So just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung for cooking without discrimination, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food, and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity. What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find that the mind is tranquil, serene, And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. So for instance, maybe the breath in the belly. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated. But rather, it's very interested and appropriately energized. At at those times, there really isn't any interest in or any necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. With our practice, just simply and clearly 
recognizing and knowing and noting without attachment that this this is what's occurring. That these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that, that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the blossoming of the factor of equanimity. Consequently, contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. So much more likely in our uh, case, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. So we're able to see and to know, to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the development of mindfulness and concentration, and also the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging, attachment, identification that can create a block, that can create a a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of uh, attachment, identification, aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing mindfulness and concentration and understanding to blossom, deepen, and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states such as patience, confidence, Metta. As the development of vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ikagata, the one-pointed nature of uh, practice, or of our capacity, blossoms. And of course, as each of you know from your own experience, until equanimity is fully blossoming and really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced 
equanimity day in and day out continuously in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma Vihara, is the way that it's practiced as one of the divine abidings. So silently repeating just one equanimity phrase over and over and over again. First directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And the phrase that I used was this, I am the heir of my kama, meaning I am the heir of all of my deeds, all of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was uh, quite a deep and uh, quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality in the mind and in the heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, hmm, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity here, now. And then the next thought was, well, if this was a Zen session or a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then those thoughts just disappeared, as thoughts do. But later that day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, although actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat, and it said, we would like you to give the dana talk, we would like you to give the generosity talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, I was not yet a Dhamma teacher, and I had no ambition, no wish to be a Dhamma teacher. So the note was quite startling. And so for a moment, after I read that note, equanimity flew right out the window. And my heart felt like it just stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in. And the thoughts came, I can't. I can't do this now. That was my old habit talking. I've been silent for so many weeks and so deeply into practice. I cannot get up in front of my fellow yogis and speak. It's totally impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart and the mind relaxed. And it saw what had just occurred very clearly. And the thought came in, ah, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test, of course. And I can do it. And I want to do it. At that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, gratitude for the retreat staff, gratitude for the Buddha, for the teachings, 
for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. So again, until Upeka has matured, we lose and we regain our balance and equipoise of equanimity, the balance and equipoise of equanimity, over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting boredom and fear, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt or disapproval, self-doubt, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking and pride and attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and maybe other, uh, and fear and other afflictive states that come up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity has arisen and, and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer, really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance? It occurs when we don't clearly see or clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead, we're blindly seduced and swept away in the happenings of life, including some of the inner experiences that happen within our meditation practice. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. But this isn't upeka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, 
ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was quite wonderfully uh, direct and uh, straightforward and very succinct in his teaching. So a brief personal story, hopefully a, an illustration of what, we're, what we've been talking about. When I first began living in Taos, quite some years ago now, over 20, 25 years ago, so many beautiful uh, handcrafted things in the store windows in the town of Taos. At times, I would become quite infatuated with what I was seeing, and sometimes getting caught in the delusion of needing what I was seeing. That very painful contraction of the must-have mind that we've all experienced at times. So I decided to do a practice with this pain, this contracted mind. So I'd walk along the street in town. We only have one main street. I'd walk along the street and look in all the shop windows and watch my mind. Watch the process of my mind and heart. I did it many times. It wasn't a quick practice. It took a while. Eventually, I was able to look in all the shop windows with all these beautiful handcrafted objects and appreciate the beauty that I was seeing with great appreciation for the amazing uh, creative capacities of the human beings that made all of these objects that I was seeing and that must-have mind, delusion of mind, stopped coming up. His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells a story about um, being taken to a particular area of London uh, by a friend. Uh, 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 And as they walked along, They were passing various shops. He was taken to this area because the friend knew about his interest. So as they were walking along, they were passing various shops that sell all kinds of tiny mechanical parts, which uh, is a particular interest and fascination of the Dalai Lamas. And he said that he found himself uh, having some very strong inner feelings of wanting them all, just wanting every one of them. And then he said, all of a sudden he realized that he actually did not know what any of them were for. (laughs) So the wanting disappeared. 
not just because he didn't know what they were for, but because he had some understanding of what was going on in his mind. I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves. Maybe in the midst of greed or dislike or boredom or resentment, maybe anger, fear, disappointment. Or in the midst of attraction and desire. The glossing over the ignorance, meaning ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity. The, oh, it's all just fine attitude or, oh, it doesn't really matter that attitude. And maybe those attitudes accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from a, a contraction. Or maybe we maybe notice a sense of grasping. Or maybe we're not aware of the contraction or the grasping, thinking it's all just fine. It's all perfectly okay. I'm totally equanimous with this. Well, this, of course, is not equanimity. But it's actually indifference based in ignorance, which is rooted in delusion, which is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upekka. And of course, we all know, each of us know, from our own experience, that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult or maybe just isn't even possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind not on dullness or not on indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood. It's also not produced by exertion. It's the result. It's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, the heart, through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, and compassion. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet these sometimes 
harsh evaluations or criticisms, uh, these various experiences that inevitably come our way. A true true equanimity is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources. The resources that have been developed through diligent practice. And from the Buddha, from the Suttanipata, develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness. Follow the absence of pride. There's an uh, amazing practice um, that I've been told was and maybe still is still occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. Now, I don't recommend this practice, (laughs) but we can take it as a a metaphor uh, for us in relationship to the uh, cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, the evenness of the mind and the heart, and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes. About 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly towards an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one on whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and also a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, 
and aversion. And equanimity also possesses the power of renewing itself. But only if it's deeply rooted in a growing understanding, deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just uh, a little time exploring with you this evening in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight are the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity and understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds, how they originate, how they come to be. This is the understanding of kama, or karma in Sanskrit, which we explored uh, in some depth, I think, last week. So just a a brief review uh, of some of what we explored in the talk about kama. The understanding that various experiences of stress, various experiences of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, meaning the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now, in this lifetime, and then on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We can say that we're born, that we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words and just as soon as we've performed any action, we've actually totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance, we could say. The truth of the way of things is that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings of life, internally and externally. So in other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses or reactions to phenomena. It's not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves. And not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so it's one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that 
we only meet ourselves, meaning we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us. What is there to fear? This then is an opening. It's an opportunity for the heart, the mind, to begin to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That we, in fact, are not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around. This is the change that our practice of sila, samadhi, and panya afford us. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. So refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, wholesome thought, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a a growing, a developing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. As we take this refuge or engage in this refuge, we gain the great strength and the evenness and balance and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and various difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to endure. And we have the strength to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us with quite a powerful motivation to be to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and that sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, 
arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of deliverance, of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed, the escape from tanha in Pali, the escape from insatiable thirst, tanha. So the first understanding, the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not-self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds. Nor do the results uh, affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion, the wrong view of a separate, solid, static self, a separate me that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, for instance, if, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or is blamed, one thinks, I'm blamed. And equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or we receive praise for something that we've done, we think, ah, oh, I've been praised. I'm a, I'm a success. Equanimity is disturbed again. If this, if this or that work or, or some aspect of our practice that we've been engaged in doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, one thinks, or my work or my practice has failed or I've failed. And, again, equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks what's mine is gone. And equanimity is again disturbed. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts. The thoughts of mine, with that thought itself maybe being quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things, which is at least relatively easy to detach oneself from. And gradually, working up to the possessions and the goals and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. 
the first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge, uh, the long-term practice center at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts was for two months. And I was the first visiting teacher there. And I was there for long enough to uh, really settle in. And, and yet again and again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it would come about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. So when I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension, uh, of stress in this phone lobbying that I got involved with. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many others who would be using the house over many, many years. Well, at one point I was told that it was okayed, that a phone would be put into the house, but when that would happen, that was unknown. (laughs) So at that point, there was a quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. And I really relaxed, and I really did truly feel that it didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, because it wasn't for me, it wasn't mine. Not long after that, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room. And Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at the time, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide uh, which rug to order. It certainly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone, actually. And I noticed that there was such a difference in the experience in the heart with this. Not this subtle contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness. No contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And it was much more fun that way. So the small things at first that we might think are ours, and working up to giving up or letting go or or relinquishing the stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we might be identified with as who we think we are. Our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up that we let go of, beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of maybe seeming minor importance, and very slowly and gently with care through our practice, working up to letting go of identification. We could say more accurately, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we we may regard as the center of our being. And also letting go of identification with the fruits that arise from our meditation practice. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, uh, shared a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his showed up, in this case he was talking about the critical mind, He said, oh, 
There's my personality. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Including positive emotions or aversions and even the specific gifts as well as the wholesome and beautiful states that manifest through our practice. And that we might be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, to whatever degree we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really come to truly know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or clinging or hatred or fear or grief? Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind and heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of kama and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seated and grows along the way of samatha practice, along the way of concentration practice and, pro, uh, and blossoms in quite a profound way as the deeper states of concentration jhana occur and particularly when one accesses the fourth jhana. I'd like to offer you a brief description of the equanimity that manifests in the fourth jhana as I think it can be helpful in pointing out the subtle place and power and process that a well-developed pure equanimity holds in the unfolding and the blossoming of practice. As one enters into and sustains mindful presence in the fourth jhana, one, one's breath stops, or at least there's absolutely no perception at all available of breathing. It's said that this is how one fully tranquilizes the body bodily formation. The experience of the fourth jhana is very subtle and muted in that there isn't any activity happening in the mind. And the body, including the breath, isn't in play. There's a clear, very settled and an extremely subtle and at the same time an intense sense of a single line or point of a bright, very stable light. There's no movement, 
nor any inclination for any activity in the mind, nor is there any interest in relationship to anything else. There's just this. And it's perfect. It's just enough. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else is wanted. It's a quietly, very subtle, mindful presence of being. Again, just this. Nothing else. The experience of centeredness and equanimity is very strong, clear, and totally pervasive. With the attainment and the maturation of the equanimity of the fourth jhana, sensuous desire for anything during the manifestation of the jhana is temporarily completely inhibited and can be considerably weakened overall in the long run. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity, isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point in your practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, and mature, concentration and insight or understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. With all of these occurring at that point with what is called a single taste, the single taste of awakening, the single taste of liberation, liberation from the kilesas, from the cankers, deliverance from suffering. At that point, there's clear insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements, and clear insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight or understanding at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one which is manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity.
the equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. This is our possibility. As an aid, as a nutriment for the arising and the development of equanimity, the Buddha and the commentaries of, uh, in relationship to the suttas offer us some very specific directions. So from the Buddha, we're told to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect, and to go forth after monks, nuns, and lay persons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and the vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully and to clearly discern states. And that if we discern states with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. When one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. When the body's tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. And we're told that for one's mind, for one whose body is tranquil and who is, whose body is tranquil and who is quietly happy in heart and mind, the mind is then easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries to the suttas tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help towards the arising and development of equanimity. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards living beings. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. Not spending a lot of time with possessive people. Associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, we're told to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of equanimity. As we practice, we come to know when equanimity is in us. We come to know when it's absent. And we come to know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. And we practice with sincerity and with diligence, with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that concentration, mindfulness, and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama.
we could say. So I'd like to close the talk with two short pieces from the Udana. The Udana is uh, a book of the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unaffected to things by things that arouse attachment, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When his or her mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering come to him? And the next piece from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists. In this case meaning the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.